Part 2 For the duration of World War I, Marcel Proust's own life gave way to a single obsession, his writing. Marcel's own life seemed less and less important. In many ways, his life was already over. His real life, that of dazzling society soirees and elegant salons, was already an anachronism, murdered by the war. Marcel now existed for reconnaissance work, categorizing the beauty and elegance he had known, trying to capture its essence in full. One night, he knocked on the door of a quartet leader, asking to hear a particular work of music as soon as possible. The two of them shared a cab around Paris, picking up the other musicians of the quartet, ferrying them back to 102 Boulevard Hausmann at one in the morning. Another time, he interviewed Celeste's young niece to accurately capture the writing of a high school girl. Marcel spent his money recklessly. What use was money if not in service of his work? And what use was money if he was going to die young? As Celeste herself put it, he wasn't afraid of illness. The only thing he feared was dying before he had finished his work. I am a very old man, Celeste, he once told her. I shan't live long, and that is why I am so anxious to finish. The rhythm of his life was unique, Celeste explained. Time contained no hours, just a certain number of definite things to be done every day. Everything else depended on his work, on some concern or need connected with his writing. It was a completely upside-down life. I never did housework except at night, never opened the windows of the flat except onto darkness. For many hours, the two would simply sit in conversation, as Marcel told stories of his famous friends and Celeste shared stories of her own humble workaday family. Marcel asked about every detail of Celeste's childhood, the nicknames she and her brothers had for one another, the pranks they would play, the trees they would climb, which flowers and fruit grew in their village. Above all, Marcel asked Celeste about her mother, a saintly, wise woman who had survived many losses. No doubt Marcel saw his own mother in Celeste's depiction of a woman who was tender and careful with her children. One spring day, Marcel received a telegram, and he called Celeste into his room. With an ashen face, he told her the terrible news. My poor Celeste, your dear mother is dead. Then the two of them sat down next to one another and wept. Marcel sent Celeste back home at once to be with her family, relying on Celeste's sister-in-law to fill in as housekeeper, just as Celeste had filled in herself back in the day. But there was no worry of Celeste getting replaced the way she'd arrived. When she made it back to Boulevard Hausman, Marcel was overcome with relief. Celeste's sister-in-law, try as she might, simply would not do. She might have been a fastidious cleaner, but she was completely uninterested in gossip. How was he supposed to know what was going on in the world with a housekeeper like that? But Celeste had returned, and by the end of the war so had her husband, Odile. And then, I think, Celeste decided, Monsieur Proust was quite happy because his little circle was complete.
And so Celeste and Marcel work together. So many feminists have written about the private lives of famous men and the way in which their wives enabled so much of their quote-unquote independence and solitude. You know, Thoreau's mother did his laundry and all that. In some ways, the fact that Celeste was a paid servant rather than Marcel's wife is a bit refreshing to me. The terms of their relationship were more honest than that of most early 20th century marriages. Celeste, for her part, was as game to help Marcel puzzle through his great literary questions as she was to bring him croissants in bed. Together, the two of them built this quiet, cloistered life, one which resonates with me more than ever during these endless days of sheltering in place. We created our own sort of intimacy. Marcel would call for tea or a snack, but nearly always these impulses provided an opportunity for keeping me in his room, and we'd talk for a long while longer. Marcel and Celeste would go over the day's events and gossip, but they would also review the latest passage of In Search of Lost Time, or a memory of Marcel's which he was trying to parse for meaning. It wasn't just that he wanted company, Celeste insisted. He needed to recapitulate, to sort out what he'd been thinking or seeing. I'm sure he tried ideas out on me so as to see more clearly what he was going to write, and also because in talking he warmed up to different ideas. I struck sparks out of him, just as he struck sparks out of me. He liked that. Celeste's contributions didn't stop at snacks and gossip. She was an essential part of the editing process. It was Celeste who came up with the idea for Marcel's famous composition notebooks, in which he would write revisions of a passage on a piece of paper and then glue it into the notebook, which Celeste would meticulously maintain so that a future publisher couldn't miss which draft was final. Meanwhile, Celeste cleaned the apartment, ordered and picked up dinner from elegant restaurants in the Hotel Ritz, hardly the type of establishments to prepare doggy bags for anyone except the eccentric, famous writer. Most evenings, Marcel would read his mail out loud to Celeste, filling her in on the cinders and the subjects, sharing the juiciest gossip in Paris. On rare occasions, Marcel ventured out of the apartment in the middle of the night to meet with the last aging princesses of Europe, or avant-garde writers and musicians. He'd return before sunrise, exhausted, and go over the night's events with Celeste, mixing in that evening's anecdotes with those from his own memory. When I am gone, Celeste, that is what you will miss most, not having a little Marcel anymore to amuse you, telling you about everything and bringing you home a salon full of people. But by and large, the Salon existed in their memories and their imaginations, and as Marcel grew older, his health deteriorated further and further. With the publication of his second volume, Within a Budding Grove, Marcel's fame exploded and he received universal acclaim. But what should have been the happiest time in Marcel's adult life collapsed in the face of an utter catastrophe. Because Marcel Proust, the most famous homebody in Paris, 
had just received an eviction notice. Remember those poor investments of the pre-war years? Well, combined with his extravagant spending on Hotel Ritz doggy bags, turns out Marcel was a bit short on the rent for 102 Boulevard Hausman. For a moment, Marcel allowed himself to dream. Would he live in Venice? Would he finish his life's work in Florence? But reality intruded. He was broke, and, his doctor reminded him, he would not survive the trip. For an asthmatic, he wrote gloomily, moving to new quarters is usually fatal. But Marcel was determined to finish his work. For months, Celeste ran ragged, making arrangements for Marcel, packing up his belongings, selling some of his possessions, and to the eternal chagrin of Proust scholars everywhere, burning Proust's old notebooks on the stove. After taking one last look around his beloved home, Marcel exited 102 Boulevard Hausman, and with it, his connection with the outside world. As Celeste recalled, death began for him with our leaving Boulevard Hausman. At once, Marcel set to work recreating his beloved isolation chamber. In went the carpets, the servant's bell, his electric lamp, his electric kettle, the thick blue satin curtains. The apartment was freezing cold, and Marcel was hardly attached to his physical surroundings. Monsieur Proust went out less and less as he plunged deeper and deeper into his work. According to Celeste, he spent those last two years in an atmosphere that already resembled the grave. When she asked if he was comfortable in his new home, he would simply reply that they were only passing through. The move was intolerable to both of them. Marcel became a tyrant, and at one point he even fired Celeste before immediately apologizing and hiring her back. Inside his cloistered apartment, Proust gasped like a half-drowned person pulled out of the water, unable to say a word or make the slightest movement. Outside, the second volume of In Search of Lost Time was a bestseller. On December 10th, Within a Budding Grove received the Prix Goncourt, France's highest literary honor. Within a day, the first edition was entirely sold out. Suddenly, the outer world spilled into Proust's sanctuary. Within three days, Marcel received 886 letters of congratulations, and at least 100 articles about a budding grove were published by the end of January. Just before the publication of his third installment, Marcel received word that he had been awarded the Legion of Honor. Marcel was world-famous, but his grasp on life was more tenuous than ever. Whether out of stress or illness or just plain addiction, it was around this time that Marcel began taking heavy doses of drugs to sleep. Life was now a race against time. Unable to adjust to life in the new apartment, even as Marcel's fame grew, his world was shrinking. Marcel and Celeste passed 1920 in near solitude, with few visitors and few adventures outside. At one point, Marcel summoned up the energy to call on a few prominent members of the Académie Française, 
there was a seat up for grabs, and Marcel was hoping to capitalize on his new literary fame to win it. But unfortunately for Marcel, it turns out that the most prestigious literary figures in France don't appreciate social calls from drugged men at one o'clock in the morning. Marcel did not win a seat. Nevertheless, on November 7, 1920, Robert Proust bestowed the Legion of Honor upon his celebrated older brother. And after the ceremony, the brothers traveled back to the cold apartment together, and they stayed up all night, reminiscing about their childhoods. Generally, however, Marcel's final years were spent with Celeste and his own memories. They lived, according to Celeste, in an almost completely closed world, where we seem to have our own special calendar, consisting either of all Sundays or all ordinary days, and our own clock, whose hours were dictated by Monsieur Proust and had nothing to do with other people's hours. Marcel's drug problem was getting worse. Desperate to get sleep before attempting a rare social call, he accidentally overdosed and nearly poisoned himself to death on barbiturates. Marcel entered 1921 suffering bronchitis and spent most of the spring locked indoors preparing the third and fourth volumes of his life's work for publication. Just as he had with Swan's Way, Marcel inscribed copies to his closest friends and family. And that spring, one process came full circle. Rather than act as courier, Celeste received a copy of her own. In May 1921, a few weeks after the publication of his third and fourth volumes, Marcel Proust stepped outside in the morning. In order to overcome his nocturnal habits, he'd simply gone without sleep the night before. Dressed in an immaculate suit, Marcel made his way to the Jeux de Pommes to see the newest exhibition on Dutch masters, including a piece with a special place in Marcel's heart, Vermeer's View of Delft. Proust had seen this painting 20 years ago, and the work was so inspiring and transformative to young Proust that a sick, dying Proust was willing to trek outside to see it one more time. Standing outside the museum, enjoying a rare ray of sunshine, a passing photographer noticed the now world-famous author and took his portrait. It would be the last photograph of Marcel Proust's life. One night in 1922, Celeste entered with her coffee and croissants, and she found Marcel looking like a child who had found the most beautiful toy and the greatest happiness. Marcel had great news to share. Something tremendous, something so wonderful, Celeste could not imagine what it could be. Sitting up in bed, Marcel announced, I have written the words, The End. Now I can die. That fall, after endless weeks of work in his freezing bedroom, Marcel caught a cold. For the next seven weeks, Marcel worked around the clock to finish his manuscripts, while Celeste waited on hand and foot to keep Marcel comfortable. Neither of them slept any more. 
Shaking and coughing and gasping for breath, Marcel spent all night correcting proofs and ringing the service bell for a book or another blanket. And yet another detail, which hits differently a hundred years later, Marcel began sanitizing his mail, afraid it was transmitting deadly diseases. When she wasn't wiping down the correspondence, Celeste was Marcel's last link to the outside world. I went back and forth. I made hot milk and coffee. He wanted some stewed fruit right away. He wanted some iced beer. I sent my husband. But what did it matter? I'd have worn my fingers to the bone rather than not do what he wanted. Part of the motivation may have been guilt. Celeste might have been the one to infect Marcel. After weeks of deterioration, Marcel received a visitor, his younger brother, the physician. Robert Proust had received a letter from Marcel's doctor, begging him to convince Marcel to rest, sleep, stop working, and for God's sake, eat something. But it was all to no avail. If he asked Celeste for lime tea, Marcel would take a single sip. If he asked for stewed fruit, he would push the bowl aside when it arrived. By the end of October, Proust's cold had settled into full-blown pneumonia. I was probably the only one, Celeste admitted, still under the illusion that he would recover. After years of hearing Marcel's insistence that he would die, 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 after years of watching Marcel pull through every asthma attack and lung infection, Celeste simply didn't believe that her employer, that her friend, would actually die. One day, Celeste caught Marcel staring into the corner behind you. I'm looking at death, he explained. But you're not going to die. Marcel looked directly at Celeste. Yes, I am. Finally, on November 18, 1922, all of the specialists shook Celeste's hand and left. Celeste and Robert Proust stood together over Marcel's bed, gazing into Marcel's eyes as he gazed back into theirs. Finally, Celeste realized that the eyes weren't really seeing her any longer. "'Is he dead?' she asked. "'Yes, Celeste. It is over.'" Over the next few days, a constant stream of famous writers and aging socialites poured into the little, freezing apartment, weeping and giving condolences to Celeste. On the day of the funeral, Robert called Celeste over to his car. You must come with the family, Celeste. No one was closer to him than you. For the next five decades, Celeste lived quietly with her memories. Against the odds, this modest country girl had found herself completely enmeshed in the world of France's most prestigious society, only to find herself completely excluded from it again. It took years for Celeste to acclimate to normal life again. She and Odile moved to the 6th arrondissement, where they ran a hotel and raised a daughter. At one point, Celeste's daughter grew ill, and she was forced to sell her few precious souvenirs of Marcel to pay for her daughter's treatment. 
Over the course of the 20th century, Marcel Proust's work, including the three posthumous publications which would go on to complete In Search of Lost Time, it all went through critical reappraisals, and Marcel acquired a cult following. For most of her life, Celeste kept quiet about her old friend, until finally, in her old age, she realized she was the only person still alive who could perform a service for Marcel. Celeste, and Celeste alone, could tell the truth about his life. In 1973, the journalist Georges Belmont arrived at Celeste's door with a tape recorder. For nearly 70 hours, Celeste pulled long-forgotten memories out of her past, telling the entire story of her eight years with Marcel. Now in her 80s, Celeste knew she was the last chance to set Marcel's story straight, and she dispelled many of the myths surrounding his life, though perhaps it's not a surprise that the elderly woman declined to mention Proust's love life. Upon publication, Celeste's memoirs were excoriated by a few critics, who called it nothing but chatter, or the ramblings of a domestic peasant. The same literary figures who considered Marcel Proust the literary genius of the 20th century snapped at the chance to condescend to the one person Marcel held in highest esteem and respect. Luckily, the world had figured out by 1973 that the men who write for French literary magazines are usually best ignored, and in 1982, Celeste's memoirs were adapted into a film, simply titled Celeste. Soon afterwards, Celeste herself was made a commander of the Order of Arts and Letters in recognition of her years maintaining Marcel's sprawling manuscripts. In her final years, she worked with the Musée Carnavalet to recreate Marcel's famous bedroom in a permanent installation. In 1984, at the age of 92, Celeste finally passed away and was buried beside her husband, Odile. Celeste's memoirs are now widely available, and next spring, the Musée Carnavalet will devote an entire exhibition to celebrating the centenary of Marcel's death. Celeste's memoirs are now widely available, and next spring, the Musée Carnavalet will devote an entire exhibition to celebrating the 100th anniversary of Marcel's death, and the exhibition will feature his bed, his writing desk, his curtains, and his cork-lined walls. By that time, the rest of us will be able to visit, bringing an entirely new understanding and empathy to Marcel and Celeste's experiences, after our own year of seclusion and reclusion and isolation. After a year inside, with only my Proust-loving boyfriend to keep me company, I can see Celeste through Marcel's eyes, and I know how lucky he felt to have her. As Marcel once inscribed to Celeste on the pages of the book they shaped together, to my faithful friend of eight years, but in reality so united with my thoughts that I would be closer to the truth in calling her my friend of always, not being able to imagine a time when I did not know her. 
Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. If you can believe it, despite his fastidious social distancing, Marcel is not the Proust most relevant to the times we live in. That prize actually goes to Marcel's father, Adrian Proust, the famous doctor who traveled the world, came up with the idea of the cordon sanitaire, and developed a little branch of science which we now call epidemiology. If you want to learn more, make sure to subscribe to the Land of Desire newsletter at thelandofdesire.substack, that's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. I'll be sending out the new issue in a few days. In the meantime, I hope that you and yours are safe, healthy, and looking forward to spending a lot more time outdoors very soon. Until next time, au revoir.